God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He brought them to the land that he had promised them, and he made covenant with them. He gave them the promise of a blessing and a curse, a blessing for faithfulness and a curse for unfaithfulness. Listen to God's promise to Israel while they were still in the wilderness before they entered into the promised land. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing, like of wheat and barley of grains, shall last to the end of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. A non-stop supply of food. God continued, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Victory in battle, peace and security. And again, continuing, God said, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Doesn't that sound great? If Israel would be faithful to God, he would bless them a hundredfold. They would have everything in abundance. And most important of all, God says, I will make my dwelling among you. And I will walk among you and will be your God. And you shall be my people. That was God's promised blessing for faithfulness. But there was a curse as well. If Israel was not faithful, God continues, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all my all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if my and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and with fever. And consume your eyes and make your heart ache. And you shall sow, excuse me, you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, and then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Basically, a reversal of all the promised blessings. Loss of food, losses in battle, sickness. And God continues these curses later. Verse 31 of that same passage, And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. 
And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. So two key things that God had foretold would come upon them if they were not faithful that are going to be very important for us in our text this morning. Uh, First, he would destroy Israel's sanctuaries where they worship him with sacrifice. And second, he would scatter them among the nations. That is, they would go into exile. So remember these curses as we consider our passage in 1 Samuel this morning. Uh, You can go and turn to 1 Samuel if you want. Uh, 1 Samuel is the ninth book of the Bible. Uh, You have the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And then 1 Samuel. If you get to 2 Samuel, you've gone too far. Uh, Two key things, God. No, we already said that. Um, So as we read this passage, we're in the time frame of the Judges. All right? The theme of the book of Judges is there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So we are in a period of time where Israel is regularly unfaithful. What we have found so far in 1 Samuel is that Israel is also led by wicked men. Uh, The sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they're, they're making a mockery of God's sacrifices. And Eli who's the judge, he's not only failing to stop them, he's actually profiting off of their sin. Uh, We've been introduced to Samuel, someone growing in favor with God and man, but he's only just beginning to rise in prominence. So he, he offers hope for the future, but that's all. Meanwhile, the Lord has promised destruction on Eli and his whole house, Uh, Going back a few generations, Israel entered the promised land. The Lord defeated their enemies before them. Uh, They took on countless foes with greater militaries than them, with strong cities, and they beat them. And they won because the Lord was with them. And the Lord promised them if they were faithful and they would finish taking control of the land, he would drive their enemies before them. He would give them peace. But Israel was not faithful. They didn't finish taking over the land. They worshipped other gods. They bowed down to various idols. And going back to that theme from Judges, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so God punished them. God allowed other nations around them to rise in power. God used those nations to discipline his people and to bring them back to him. And that's where we are in our text this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, Let me pray, and then we'll look at our text together. God, our Father, you are so gracious and kind to us. We praise you. We praise you for your awesome might and power. We praise you that in the midst of a global pandemic, that it is not outside your control. You are not powerless to stop it. That you are in control. And you are good. Father, we pray for your church. Uh, Many around our city, state, and nation are not able to gather today. Uh, Many people around the world are not able to gather today. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be with your people. Comfort your people. Encourage your people. Give us wisdom and discernment. And Father, for us here this morning, as we study your word, give us understanding. Help us to see your glory and majesty. 
and build us up and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's text can be considered in the form of a play with seven scenes. Uh, We have a setting and then four scenes of rising action, a climactic battle scene, and then two scenes of falling action. And we'll examine the text along those lines. So the the setting, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Uh, Israel is at war with the Philistines. The Philistines have risen as a small regional power. They're on the east coast of the Mediterranean, which is just southwest of where Israel is. And the Philistines are one of those nations whose rise to power and their opposition to Israel are due to Israel's disobedience. Now, I know that idea would sound shocking to some people. Um, You might point to geopolitical realities going on then that led to Israel's decline and to the rise of the Philistines. Uh, Crop famines and failures, internal battles within Israel, natural disasters, and so on, and all those things are true. In fact, you could read about them in the book of Judges. But the other thing we discover from the book of Judges, and really everywhere in Scripture, is that God is sovereignly ruling over all these things. God's covenant with Israel specifically gave blessing for obedience and a curse for disobedience. The record of the book of Judges is that Israel was unfaithful and that God regularly punished them for it. God sent various tribulations on them to call them to repent. And so while it's true, we could potentially highlight various geopolitical reasons why the Philistines rose in power. We could identify reasons for their opposition to Israel. Underlying all of them, they have arisen at God's design to be a thorn in Israel's side. God will use them to discipline his people, and then God will punish them for their own sin. So the Philistines are a regional power, more powerful than Israel at this particular moment in time. And as Israel and the Philistines prepare for battle, they've drawn up camps in neighboring towns. Uh, So the Israelites have made camp at Ebenezer. Uh, Ebenezer means stone of help or stone of blessing. Uh, That name is going to be sadly ironic in this particular battle. The Philistines are camped at Aphek. The the exact location of these towns is debated. Uh, They're roughly probably a couple few miles from each other. So this is the setting, this battleground scene between Israel and the Philistines. The rising action of our narrative plays out across four scenes. Scene one, the battlefield. Verse two. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So the Philistines line up on this side, and Israel lines up on this side, and they attack each other in the middle. It's a pretty common war strategy. Sides right in the middle. Uh, Things get spread out, you know, across various individual skirmishes. They move forward and backwards along the line. But ultimately, Israel takes the big loss loss today. They they lose 4,000 men. Not a good day. Then the day draws to a close. The battle winds down. Both sides retreat to their own camps. And that's the end of scene one. Fade to black. Scene two, Israel's war room. Verse three. 
And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the war council gathers together. Rough day today, guys. Uh, We may have lost 4,000 men, but we didn't look good doing it either. What's going on? Why did we lose? And someone says, the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines. You see, the Israelite elders, they recognize that the Lord is the one who defeated them. Yes, the Philistines defeated them. Uh, They had better tactics, more men, better weapons. They fought harder. Other than that, Israel looked pretty good. But yes, the Philistines were simply better on that day. But underlying that, the Lord is the one who defeated Israel. The Lord is the one who raises up nations and brings them low. Israel fought many battles against worse odds, but they won. And the reason they won those battles is because the Lord was with them. The Lord was fighting for Israel. But in this battle, the Lord seemed to be fighting against Israel. So the war council is gathering together, and they remember the Ark of the Covenant. Let's send for the Ark of the Covenant, Shiloh, then the Lord will be here among us. Then the Lord will save us. Now, when we read that second sentence in verse 3, it says, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Uh, That sounds like they're saying the Ark itself would save them, which would obviously be a form of idolatry. Uh, But you probably have a footnote next to the word it, which indicates it can also mean he. Most likely, they're saying that they should bring the ark of the Lord so that he, the Lord, can come and save them. And we'll see a little later, the Philistines actually interpret the situation that way as well. The ark represents the presence of the Lord, so if the ark is there, then the Lord is present. That's what the symbolism means. And so the elders think, if the ark is with us, the Lord is with us, and we win. End of scene two, curtain closes curtain rises, scene three, the larger Israelite camp. So we go from that individual war room, we spread out and we see the whole Israelite camp, verse four. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Now, I know technically we might think of this as two scenes because they send to Shiloh, but we don't really see any details there. So I'm just considering this the scene is the Israelite camp. The, The ark arrives from Shiloh. It arrives in the Israelite camp. And as soon as the ark enters the camp, the the whole army shouted with confidence and joy. And they shouted so loud that the earth resounded with the shout. You know, probably they're on the upper end of a valley. And so you can imagine this loud shout just echoing across the other wall, this sustained cacophony of noise. The ark of the Lord has arrived. We're going to win. The Lord will fight for us now because he will be present in the camp. And the scene closes and the curtain closes. 
curtain opens, scene four, the Philistine camp, verse six. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines are in their camp for the night. They're minding their own business. It's been a successful day of battle for the Philistines. They're probably planning how to continue their success. Uh, They know Israel's down. How can we press our advantage? And then from the stillness of the evening, they hear a shout from Israel. Well, what's going on? We won today. They're not supposed to be excited over there. Who's giving the motivational talks on that side of the camp? So they send their spies out to discover what's going on. The spies go and they listen and they come back. Israel has brought their ark into the camp. There is a God in the camp of Israel. And just like that, all the enthusiasm drained out of the Philistine camp. All the excitement of victory, all the confidence, they say, woe to us. We are doomed. Israel's God has entered into their camp with them. Nothing like this has happened before. We've fought men before, but never gods. Notice the Philistines think that the Israelites are polytheistic. It's actually a reasonable interpretation of Israel's religious practices at the time. Uh, You see that in the book of Judges. So in their mind, these these are the same gods that sent those plagues to Egypt. We've heard all about it. So the Philistine general knew what he had to do. He gathered his men and he gave them the pep talk of his life. Be men, take courage. Tomorrow we fight against gods. If we lose, we become slaves to them just like they've been to us. But if we win, we become become the men who fight against gods and win. So be men and fight. And the army goes crazy. Fade to black. We arrive at the climax of the story. The curtain opens again. We're set for battle. Uh, Scene five, the climactic battle scene. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Well, that didn't go the way it was supposed to for Israel. Absolute slaughter. They fought. Israel was defeated. They didn't even hold a defensive position. Every man fled to his home. 30,000 foot soldiers killed. Also, the Ark of God captured. Also, the priests Hophni and Phinehas, dead. This was a dark day for Israel. It really couldn't have gotten much worse than this. Defeated, demoralized, the ark of God is gone. 
Israel misdiagnosed their problem. Israel thought their problem was the lack of God's presence. Bring God's presence near and we'll win. Their problem was not the lack of God's presence. Their problem was their sin. Their problem was their evil leaders. Their problem was that God's presence was not for them, but against them. So when they bring the ark, they do bring God's presence symbolically. But by bringing God's presence, they in fact bring defeat on themselves. Because God had told them that their unfaithfulness would result in a curse. But consider, if you would, the sovereignty of God in all of this. God raised up the Philistines for his own purposes. God was bringing judgment on his chosen nation. God was bringing judgment on Eli's house. What happened on this day was God's purpose. It was God's promise. It was God's design. Empires rise and fall at the command of God. And on this day, judgment was coming on God's people. You know, in the darkest moments, we can still know that God is at work. When tragedy strikes a people, it is often the case that it strikes on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Those tornadoes in Tennessee a couple weeks ago, they didn't go around the homes of Christians. They didn't go around the businesses of Christians. Christians will not be immune from the coronavirus, no matter what they say on TBN. God's people in Israel had to trust God even in the midst of the suffering that they faced. And as God's people today, we have to trust God in the midst of the suffering we face. The same God who raises up nations and lowers them also cares for individual people like you and like me. The same God who gives victory in battle and defeat in battle gives to all according to his gracious providence. Nothing happens outside his control, so we can rest in him. We do not need to fear if pandemics destroy life and livelihoods. We do not need to panic if we face disease and death. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is sovereign, and he is good, and he loves every child who belongs to him. Consider also the mercy of God even in the midst of this judgment. God has rescued his people from the evil leadership of Hophni and Phinehas. 
These two men who were bringing condemnation on the nation, those who were oppressing God's people, God has removed them. We usually focus on God's faithfulness in protecting and saving his people. God is faithful to deliver. But the other side of God's faithfulness is that he is faithful to judge sin. God is faithful to bring people to repentance. And sometimes that means we face the severe mercy of God. That God as a loving father disciplines his children so that we might return to faithfulness. Here God brought judgment on the evil leaders who opposed him. He brought judgment on the Israelite soldiers that defied him. God brought trials and tribulations on faithful people who were simply there. And through this all, God was working according to his own purposes. In our narrative, this moment is the climax. Israel is crushed before her enemies. Now we arrive at the falling action. But even though this is the falling falling action, this is where we're given a theological perspective on the events of the day. Uh, Scene 6, the edge of the city of Shiloh. Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. It's about 20 miles, by the way. With his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. Verse 14, when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. By the way, verse 18, that's how we know it's the falling action. Sorry, a little literary humor for you. (laughs) Poor Eli, blind as a bat. Bats aren't technically blind, it's a figure of speech hard of hearing, waiting at the front edge of the city to hear the news of the battle. As soon as it comes in, a man runs from the battle to share the news. His clothes are torn. He's poured dirt on his head. Any Israelite could look at this man and know what happened in the battle on that day. Anyone but Eli. Eli can't see or hear. The man runs right by Eli into the city to share the news. Eli doesn't even know he's there. Eli suddenly hears shouting in the city as they all hear the bad news. And Eli's wondering, what's going on? How did it go? And then finally, the man comes back to Eli to give him the report. Terrible defeat. Israel fled. Your sons are dead. 
The ark is lost to the Philistines. Eli is the picture of spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness. He is the judge of Israel. He has acted as the sometimes priest and prophet. He should know what is going on. But instead, he is completely lost. He is clueless. He is the last to hear, the last to know, the last to understand. And then verse 18 is a kind of poetic justice for Eli. Eli is fat because his sons have been stealing the choice sacrificial portion from God. Eli is fat because he's been getting the fat from his sons. And so when he falls over backward and hits his neck because he is fat, he breaks his neck and dies instantly. God's judgment that is dramatically consistent with Eli's sin. Remember, Eli has been warned about his sin. Eli chose not to repent. His sons did not repent. And now he is getting the judgment that God foretold. Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day, and then Eli dies too. Eli is this tragic picture of someone who was a leader of God's people and ended his life in spiritual blindness. It's a dark day for Israel, but also remember, the fulfillment of this prophecy highlights the other promise of God made at the same time, the future hope of a faithful priest forever. Fade to black. The curtain reopens for our final scene, scene seven, the delivery room. Uh, Verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said, do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So the line of Eli will continue for now, but Eli's grandson will grow up an orphan, his mother and father dying on the same day the fulfillment of God's word to Eli. But the central truth of this text is revealed in the name of this child, Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory has departed from Israel. First of all, this is like this huge play on words. Um, The glory has departed in that the spiritual leaders of Israel, this mother's husband and father-in-law, have died. So in that sense, the glory is departed. Uh, Also, the other meaning of glory is weight. So the weight has departed and that portly Eli has died. Whoever said biblical authors don't have a sense of humor. But most important, the ark is gone. And the ark represents the presence of the Lord. The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. 
Do you remember the two covenant curses I mentioned earlier? The two key curses for our text anyway. God would destroy Israel's sanctuaries and they would uh, where, where they worshiped him with sacrifice. And second, he would scatter them among the nations. That is, they would go into exile. Well, the first curse has come true. Uh, the text doesn't mention this, but Shiloh gets destroyed. Uh, Shiloh will never again be the place of worship for God's people. In the rest of the Bible, Shiloh is never mentioned as a place of worship. But the second curse was that Israel would go into exile. They would be scattered among the nations. But that curse doesn't come true on this day in the way we expect. Israel doesn't bear that punishment. The Lord bears that punishment for his people. The other way you can translate those two identical phrases in verse 21 and verse 22 is that the glory has been exiled from Israel. God warned his people that if they were unfaithful, they would go into exile. And they have been unfaithful. And so the Lord went into exile in their place. Now, consider the grace and mercy of God, even in judgment. Yes, Israel was defeated in battle, but Israel did not go into exile. God's presence went into exile. God's glory went into exile. The glory has been exiled from Israel. The Lord bore the reproach of his people. Our scripture reading this morning was from Psalm 78, and it poetically describes what God did in our text this morning. The Lord forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power into captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. The Lord delivered his power into captivity. The Lord delivered his glory into the hand of the foe. The Lord sent his glory into exile. You know, it can be hard for us to consider the judgment of God. It's kind of easy to see Hophni and Phinehas receive their judgments. After all, we probably kind of feel like they deserve this judgment. It's kind of like most people are willing to acknowledge, well, Hitler is a bad person. He deserved punishment. Generally, nonviolent people still rejoiced on the day that Osama bin Laden was shot. If someone is evil enough, we're glad that they get judged. So it's relatively easy to look at Hophni and Phineas and be satisfied with their judgment. It can be a lot harder to understand why 34,000 Israelites died across these two days of battle. It's a lot of lives. But we have to remember, one, their covenant with God. God had told them that their disobedience and unfaithfulness would result in this kind of judgment, and they chose that path anyway. Two, we really do have to recognize the severity and wrath of God. God hates those who defy him. God brings justice against all evil. But even more, 
we also have to see the ways that over and over again, God steps in and covers the punishment his people deserve. How God grants mercy and kindness to his people. Sometimes people look at narratives like this in the Old Testament and they cannot see the connection to the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament seems so violent and full of wrath. The God of the New Testament is so full of love and forgiveness. How do we connect those? Well, there's two reasons we don't make that connection. One, we fail to recognize God's grace and mercy in the Old Testament. And two, we fail to recognize God's justice and wrath in the New Testament. It is not that the Old Testament God has wrath and the New Testament God has grace. The God of the Old and New Testaments is a God of wrath and grace, a God of mercy and justice. In our text, we see God's wrath against sin played out. But we also see God's grace and mercy poured out. God bore the punishment that his people deserved. And so when we get to the New Testament, we should not be surprised when that very same thing happens. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. He's the fulfillment of all the types and the foreshadows. Just as God bore the punishment of exile in the place of his people, Jesus bore the punishment of God's wrath in the place of his people. Instead of God's wrath being applied to sinners, that wrath was applied to Jesus. On the cross, Jesus bore God's wrath for sin. God's wrath is not absent in the New Testament. It is propitiated by the death of his son. God's wrath is covered by the death of his son. Jesus bore God's wrath for sin on the cross. Jesus received that wrath in himself. He paid the price for sin on the cross. So when we're shocked by God's wrath in the Old Testament, remember Jesus bore that wrath of sin for everyone who trusts in him. And consider the love and grace and mercy and kindness of God that he would apply that wrath for your sin to himself, to his own son, and that he would give you life instead. In our text, God fulfilled his promises. He always does. God allowed his glory to be to appear temporarily diminished, that it might be eternally exalted. On this day, the Philistines believed they had defeated Israel's God. They believed they had taken Israel's God into their own camp. They believed their gods were greater than Israel's God. They did not realize they had simply carried out the purposes of the Lord God. They did not realize God was using them as his instruments for his purposes. Days like we see in our text are reminders of God's eternal purposes. What may appear to be a short-term defeat will only mean eternal victory. Consider the cross of Jesus Christ. To Jesus' disciples, it looked like defeat. It looked like the end. It looked like it was all over and they just had to go about their lives all over again. But the cross was the moment 
of victory. Jesus was vindicated three days later when God raised him from the dead. And just as God's glory is what went into exile, even so Jesus went into exile for his people. Jesus was crucified outside the camp. Jesus was abandoned by his father. He was forsaken. God took on himself the punishment that his people so rightly deserved. We deserve God's punishment for our sin, for our rebellion, for our defiance. But God bore the punishment for us. Jesus, the Son of God, took our punishment on himself. If you believe in Jesus, your sin is covered by his blood. But if you refuse to trust in Jesus, you will one day pay for your own sin, just like the Israelites did on this day. Except your punishment will be for eternity, separated from God, bearing his wrath against your sin. Well, wrapping up, God offered his people a blessing for faithfulness and a curse for unfaithfulness. Israel was not faithful on the day we see in our text. They weren't faithful for an extended period of time. And if there's anything we'll find over and over in 1 Samuel and really in the whole Old Testament, it is that no one is faithful. Maybe in moments, but not for long. And that is why God sent his own son to earth. Jesus came to earth, God in human flesh, and he was fully faithful. And just as Jesus took God's punishment in himself, as God sent his son, God himself took on his own punishment, God also came and accomplished the faithfulness that he demands. Jesus demonstrated the perfect life of righteousness that God demands. Jesus fulfilled the righteousness that results in God's promised blessing. And since in Jesus we have the fulfillment of the command for faithfulness, in Jesus we also have the certain promise that God will be our God and we will be his people. In Revelation, God repeats that promise to his people. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jesus accomplished the righteousness God demands. He earned the promises that God made and everyone who is in Jesus earns those promises along with him. As we go our separate ways today, go in the peace of God. Be wise, be careful, be safe, show love to your neighbor, and know that God is in control and we are safe in his arms. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we praise you. You're glorious and majestic your sovereign providence rules over all things. Father, we thank you that even in our text we see your, your sovereign control. We see your judgment against sin. But we also see your grace and your mercy as you bear your own punishment for the sin of your people. Father, we thank you for Christ who came and bore our punishment in our place. 
May he be exalted today. In Jesus' name, amen.